Hello and welcome to another episode of Virtual Legality. I'm your host, Richard Hogue, managing member of the Hogue Law Business Law Firm. And today we have an update to a video that we put out only six or seven hours ago. And in that video, we discussed the president's plan to issue an executive order to regulate the social media enterprises on the internet, your Twitters, your YouTubes, your Facebooks, your Instagrams. And we looked at this in-depthly. We looked at it for more than 40 minutes. We talked about the problems that were put forth in this draft executive order, including some, in my opinion, complete misreadings of what the actual statutory authority says. And one of the things that I said in that video was, this is a draft version of the executive order. If there are substantive changes in the final version, I will update those as a pinned comment to the original video, which I have done. I have put that up in a pinned comment to the original video. You can go check that out right now if you don't want to listen to this video and hear maybe a little bit of extra commentary on the changes that I identified. But because they were substantive enough and because they changed what really was my primary issue with the way the original draft version of the executive order was organized, I wanted to flag it for those of you that are only going to watch these in video form. A lot of you watch the videos. I am very appreciative of it and never check the comments. And I can't blame you. There's a whole lot of wackiness going on in the comments. And I often forget to check comments, even pinned comments in the videos that I watch as well. So because there are significant changes that were really promulgated under the ch- under the changes in this final version of the executive order, I wanted to go through them with you just a little bit. Now, if you haven't seen a red line before, don't panic. This is what I do every day. So what I've done is I've taken the original draft version that we reviewed this morning. I have run it through one of the programs that my law firm has to compare it to the final version changed a little bit of the formatting between what we can spot on the internet and elsewhere. And it gives us the ability to see specifically what was altered. Now, we're not going to go through every bit of this. I don't want to bore you to tears. And if you already watched that previous video, I think you've got a good handle for what the president and the executive branch in general is trying to achieve here. And if you haven't watched that video, some of this might not make sense because I'm going to tie it into my earlier commentary. So you might want to check out that video first as well. But we're just going to walk through this. The early section, as we talked about, is really just the politics here. It's the why. Why are we doing this? And you see this big batch of blue here. That is actually just this big batch of red that they moved up. They just wanted to highlight that they think Twitter is un-American and anti-democratic. They wanted that a little bit further up in the executive order. It was a little too far down, could get lost. You don't want that. In this new blue paragraph, they actually identify Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube as what amounts to the enemies of the people, right? That's a phrase that we hear a lot from the executive branch, but they specifically identified these four companies as wielding immense, if not unprecedented power to shape the interpretation of public events, to censor, delete, or disappear information, and to control what people see or do not see. Makes them sound like wizards, doesn't it? But it's clear that this is what the executive order was designed for, to attack these companies, or at bare minimum, if we're being more generous, to make them think twice about whatever it is that they might otherwise decide to do. The next giant blue paragraph is actually describing what just happened. 
The background for this is that the president had tweets 48 hours ago. Twitter decided to put a little editorial link on that tweet, led its followers, its users over to a different site that showed what Twitter clearly thought were the lies that the president had just offered in his own tweet. And this blue paragraph says as follows, Twitter now selectively decides to place a warning label on certain tweets in a manner that clearly reflects political bias. As has been reported, Twitter seems never to have placed such a label on another politician's tweet. As recently as last week, Representative Adam Schiff was continuing to mislead his followers by peddling the long-disproved Russian collusion hoax, and Twitter did not flag those tweets. Unsurprisingly, its officer in charge of so-called site integrity has flaunted his political bias in his own tweets. So this is fairly typical of the kind of politicization you see in a lot of executive orders, but it is a little bit off-putting, right? We're talking about law. We are talking about the enforcement of laws. And this is clearly a personal grudge. This is clearly related to what happened 48 hours ago. And we don't usually see executive orders passed with this amount of rapidity based on a single action like that. You can see it bothers the president. And whether or not you agree with the president being bothered, you agree with Twitter, or you agree with neither of them, a pox on both your houses, it still is unusual to see. They then changed a few things in the China paragraph, most notably to me, They changed the phrase Google to one United States company. Google is changed to it. They don't reference Google anymore. They reference these companies up here, including YouTube, owned by Google, but they got rid of this whole Google reference as working with China. That's interesting. That's politics, right? They didn't want to offend or upset Google for some reason. Maybe it's because they're working with Google to do some of the contact tracing stuff. I don't know what that reason is, but it is notable that they took them out of this paragraph. Now we get to the law. Section two, this was the primary section that I had an issue with this morning, protections against online censorship, formerly protections against arbitrary restrictions. It is the policy of the United States to foster clear ground rules, promoting free and open debate on the internet. I personally just love this. This is the lawyer in me. You can see that they were fighting about whether internet is capitalized. I don't know whether you have an opinion on that. Please leave a comment to this video if you have an opinion. I'm a capital I internet guy, and clearly the original drafter of this executive order was a capital I internet person, but the lowercase I won the day. I don't know if that's the biggest change here, but very, very important. Prominent among the ground rules governing that debate is the immunity from liability created by Section 230C, of the Communications Decency Act. And just as a refresher, we just went over that this morning, but C1 says no provider or user of an interactive computer service, Twitter, shall be treated as the publisher of any information provided by another information content provider. Twitter isn't responsible for what Joe Blow puts up as a tweet. And then two says Twitter shall not be held liable on account of any action voluntarily taken in good faith to restrict access to or availability of material that Twitter considers to be obscene, lewd, lascivious, filthy, excessively violent, harassing, or otherwise objectionable, whether or not it's constitutionally protected. So Twitter gets protection as not a publisher of what its users say, and it gets protection for restricting access to or taking down material that it finds objectionable. Those are the two primary protections of CDA section 230. And what this section originally did was say that if you violate the good faith requirement of section 230C2, 
you lose protection under 230C1. And I believe I called that balderdash this morning because it is. There is no qualification. There is no link between those paragraphs. And fortunately, this executive order in its final form gets rid of that link. It is the policy of the United States that the scope of that immunity should be clarified. The immunity should not extend beyond its text and purpose to provide protection for those who purport to provide users a forum for free and open speech, but in reality, use their power over a vital means of communication to engage in deceptive or pretextual actions stifling free and open debate by censoring certain viewpoints. The philosophy here, this is new language, right? The philosophy here goes back to the other sections that we looked at this morning and that mostly remain the same in this final version, that there is something deceptive about Twitter and YouTube and Facebook and Instagram saying, oh yes, it is a core precept of our company that we believe in the freedom of speech, the freedom of expression. It's a humanitarian-based ideal. And also we're going to do X, Y, or Z to certain politics. That's the notion here. You don't have to agree with it. That's the notion that is being put forth by this executive order. The language then goes on to say, hey, early court decision said you might be a publisher. And so Section 230C was put into place to say you aren't a publisher for just removing harmful content. And then they try to narrow it. They say, in particular, Congress sought to provide protections for online platforms that attempted to protect minors from harmful content and intended to ensure that such providers would not be discouraged from taking down harmful material. The provision was also intended to further the express vision of the Internet of Congress that the internet is a forum for a true diversity of political discourse, right? If you were with us this morning, you know that's exactly what we read. We read through the findings and what was supposed to be the purpose of this section to preserve the vibrant and competitive free market that presently exists for the internet and other interactive computer services unfettered by federal or state regulation. Nothing says unfettering like having an executive order directly on your subject matter. But suffice it to say, they try to tie the notion of this particular concept, no civil liability for moderation, for removal, only to harmful material aimed at minors, right? In particular, Congress sought to provide protections for online platforms that attempted to protect minors from harmful content and intended to ensure that such providers would not be discouraged from taking down harmful material. The provision was also intended to further the express vision of Congress that the internet is a forum for a true diversity of political discourse, the limited protections provided by the statute should be construed with these purposes in mind, right? An executive order can't change the law. All it can do is try to underline things, point the pen very harshly at a court to say, this is what the law means. That's what an executive order can do. And to their credit in this final version, that's what it does. It doesn't try to tie bar these provisions in a way that doesn't make sense. However, This provision in CDA 230C2 is never that narrow. It's never aimed just solely at removing harmful material. This language, otherwise objectionable, is enormously broad. If the CEO of Twitter finds Republican thought otherwise objectionable, this act says nothing about it. It says if you just want to remove stuff because you find it objectionable, I find Republican immigration policy objectionable. I am striking everything that relates to it. Then this provision basically says that's okay. And maybe that's not the way it should be, but it is the way that it is. And so Congress should look at the law if Congress has reason to do so. 
And I sit here as a lawyer and say, yeah, I think Twitter and YouTube and various other places are probably stepping over some very important lines. I did an entire video in this space in virtual legality about how Google and YouTube were depressing, suppressing videos like mine on my channel to allow for quote unquote authoritative voices to have increased viewership, to get more views, to have more people have that information given to them, even when I could point to three or four or 10 of those authoritative voices being wrong on a question of law, something that I know probably better than Newscaster X. But that doesn't matter. I'm not authoritative. I have 10,000 subscribers. Thank you, everybody, by the way. Big growth in the channel over the past couple of days. But I'm not CNN. I'm not Fox News. I'm not even Vox. I'm not anybody like that. And so YouTube says, nope, we don't want to hear you so much. And I don't think that's a great way for these, these platforms to behave. But I also don't think that that necessarily means that they should just be liable for that behavior. But this executive order says maybe they should be. The main thrust of this is in this next paragraph, and we're going to have to read through some blue and red. In particular, Section C2 expressly addresses protections from civil liability and specifies that an interactive computer service provider, Twitter, may not be liable on account of its decision in good faith to restrict access to content that it considers to be obscene, lewd, lascivious, filthy, excessively violent, harassing, or otherwise objectionable. It is the policy of the United States to ensure that to the maximum extent permissible under the law, This provision is not distorted to provide liability protection for online platforms that, far from acting in good faith to remove objectionable content, note the base that is stolen there, they're establishing that this isn't good faith, what they are describing, without a court or anybody else interpreting it for them, instead engage in deceptive or pretextual actions, often contrary to their stated terms of service, to stifle viewpoints with which they disagree." This executive order, this particular section of this executive order is now aimed solely at, we think you are doing things to stifle viewpoints with which you disagree. And if you do that, we don't believe that you are acting in good faith, this orange language right here. And if you aren't acting in good faith, you shouldn't get access to this protection from liability. And you or I might not agree with that. You or I might think that's too broad of a reading of what good faith is and that the law actually suggests that that's almost the opposite of what should be happening here with this broad, otherwise objectionable language. But they have actually put forth an interpretation that doesn't violate every fiber of my legal being as being just flatly wrong and outside the bounds of what the statute is. So I have to give credit for that. Somebody in White House counsel said, we can't go out with that. This is stupid. I watched virtual legality this morning and Rick, Rick has a point. This continues with some more kind of politics explaining. Section 230 was not intended to allow a handful of companies to grow into titans, controlling vital avenues for our national discourse under the guise of promoting open forums for debate and then to provide those behemoths You always got to look out when you start using titans and behemoths in an executive order. Blanket immunity when they use their power to censor content and silence viewpoints that they dislike. When an interactive computer service provider, Twitter, removes or restricts access to content and its actions do not meet the criteria of that subparagraph, good faith, it is engaged in editorial conduct. And then all this stuff that links it to section C1 goes away. And they finish with, it is the policy of the United States that such a provider should properly lose the limited liability shield of C2A and be exposed to liability like any traditional editor and publisher that is not an online provider. 
you or I don't have to agree with how they have interpreted what good faith is. But ultimately, this is the kind of thing that an executive order should be doing. It takes this language. It says, this is how we read it. This is how we think the Department of Justice should read it. The things that are within our ambit in the executive branch, this is how we will read it. And that's what we're going to do. And if you want to challenge it, you can sue us. And they will. There will be lawsuits on all of this because it's an easy lawsuit and executive orders are hard to back up on these kinds of things. But it's within the rough authority that they have to try to interpret these things and see what happens. They then make some changes to what they're actually asking for the attorney general and some other groups to do. They make it 60 days instead of 30 days. And then they do this. They ask for these groups and the FCC to clarify the interaction between subparagraphs C1 and C2 of section 230 in particular to clarify and determine the circumstances under which a provider of an interactive computer service, Twitter, that restricts access to content in a manner not specifically protected by subparagraph C2A may also not be able to claim protection under subparagraph C1, which merely states that a provider shall not be treated as a publisher or speaker for making third-party content available and does not address the provider's responsibility for its own editorial decisions. So this is a bit mischievous if we are being generous. So we already talked about the fact that they were aimed at combining these two sections in a way that, in my view, was illegal. They ditched that. Some lawyer got in some other lawyer's ear and said, we can't do that. But they said, we can tell the attorney general, the FCC, some other groups to say, okay, what if you're a repeat offender? If you just keep taking actions in bad faith, can we say that at some point you are no longer a provider of an interactive computer service. And you need to look at that. You need to potentially promulgate regulations around that. The problem is they're still dealing with the definitions, right? If you are an interactive computer service provider, it just means that you provide an information service system or access software that provides or enables computer access by multiple users. What you do with it doesn't really change that that is what you are. And so it's very difficult to come around and say, you fall outside of this first paragraph. It's a big, big problem for those folks that want to attach liability to a, a platform like Twitter for the actions of one of its users. But it doesn't mean that Twitter gets out of liability for what it actually says. And so this paragraph doesn't actually change how the law operates. It just highlights that, like we saw in the draft version of this executive order, the president, the executive branch, would really like to attack social media on this front. That if they can somehow convince one of these agencies, the DOJ, they can win a lawsuit, whatever it might be, that they have violated this section 2A a number of times that they should lose the section 1 protection, which is the big, bold, broad protection. That is how Twitter and YouTube and Instagram and Facebook operate, how the internet operates in today's day and age. But overall, while that might sound horrible, this is vastly better than what we reviewed this morning. And that's what I say in the comment that I put in the video that I did this morning. I say most prominently, the biggest flaw in the draft version, the concept that 230C2 liability qualifies or ends 230C1 liability has been removed from this final version. In its place, the order states that C2 protections were designed to allow platforms to remove harmful materials and that deceptive actions intended solely to stifle viewpoints should effectively be treated as bad faith. It does ask the FCC to look into making regulations around just how much bad faith might result in the loss of C1 protection as a platform. That's not great. I don't love it, but 
it is more in keeping with the spirit of the law. Then we go through and we don't have things that are necessarily as sexy or as exciting as that change. That was the big change that they needed to make. The biggest item that you can kind of spot here in sections three and sections four is that they've completely ditched the concept of a White House Office of Digital Strategy. Uh, I guess that's not something that exists. They've ditched kind of the retention or recreation of their tech bias tool. They have said that the agency heads are not going to determine for themselves when a platform kind of violates these precepts so that the federal agency shouldn't be spending marketing dollars. Instead, that's going to be placed in the hands of the Department of Justice. Uh, And then you get down a little bit further and they start asking for the Attorney General Working Group. This is the U.S. Attorney General working with various states' Attorney General to, one, they want them to promote model legislation for the adoption in states which are determined by this group to not protect consumers from unfair or deceptive practices by online platforms. And then they also expanded the ambit of this group. So this group is essentially a task force designed to go identify what are problematic online services, social media platforms. And originally there was reference to monitoring or creating watch lists. And I think a lot of people read this wrongly, and this isn't their fault. This is written kind of poorly from the perspective of the executive order. This isn't saying that government is going to be establishing monitoring or creating watch lists, although God knows they do that in other areas and that's its own problem. This is saying that the working group is going to use publicly available information to evaluate whether Twitter or Facebook or Instagram is doing these very bad things so that they can create a list of these platforms doing these very bad things, say that they are stifling viewpoints, and then have them lose their good faith protection for whatever it is that they desire to do. That's the long game on all this. Right now, it's just the collection of information. But this has also been increased, and this list is a lot longer. So rather than describing watch lists, which in trial balloon land, they undoubtedly noticed were being read as something really bad, that they don't want the government even talking about watch lists, even though they were talking about Twitter's prospective watch list. So they say, the working group shall also collect publicly available information regarding the following. And I would have added, in respect of these platforms. Increased scrutiny of users based on the other users they choose to follow or their interactions with other users. So they want to know whether Twitter is blacklisting you or suppressing you or shadow banning you based on the fact that you follow X political personality or Y political personality, or whether you give likes or retweets or things along those lines. They want to know whether YouTube is using, for instance, an algorithm to suppress content or users based on indications of political alignment or viewpoint. Now, that's an interesting question, right? Google and YouTube is elevating authoritative sources. And we think of politics as kind of right, left, red, blue, Democrat, Republican, what have you. But I think there's also a certain amount of divide between kind of establishment, non-establishment, and just the way that kind of thought process works. So if you're looking at something like this, does the fact that YouTube basically admitted to suppressing the Hoglaw YouTube channel for five solid weeks about coronavirus-related topics, does that meet this kind of criteria? Is that a political question? I don't know the answer to that, but it's the kind of thing that you want to be worried about if you are worried about government overreach. They also are supposed to collect information about differential policies allowing for otherwise impermissible behavior. Now, this is fairly funny coming from the president's office, right? I don't have any specific feelings on President Trump's tweets, but I do note when I see them 
that they very often would seem to violate certain community guidelines that Twitter puts forth and that might get someone else banned or otherwise have their tweet restricted. So this particular item says, we need to watch out for differential policies allowing for otherwise impermissible behavior. And you say, uh-oh, but they only mean to limit it to the Chinese. When committed by accounts associated with the Chinese Communist Party or other anti-democratic associations or governments. Okay. Number four, reliance on third-party entities, including contractors, media organizations, and individuals with indicia of bias to review content. Now, this is a Facebook attack, right? We did an entire video on Facebook essentially collecting these fact-checkers that had personal relationships to the stories that they were fact-checking. We did it in the context of discussing whether or not coronavirus escaped from a Wuhan laboratory. And the fact that Facebook had struck this one news article and then replaced it, and that the fact checkers had actually said they worked at this laboratory. And look, I don't have any idea the truthness or falsity of that, but neither did Facebook. And so I think the point of these kinds of things is if you're going to use fact checkers, you got to make sure that they are neutral. And again, this is all outside the bounds of CDA 230. This is all kind of just coming out of nowhere. This is just an information collection group but it's all worth noting. Finally, they have acts that limit the ability of users with particular viewpoints to earn money on the platform compared with other users similarly situated. So like on YouTube, if the Hoglaw YouTube channel is saying something vaguely political, and we don't do that very often here, uh, except when we're talking about the law, which I guess has a political kind of parameter involved with it naturally, that if you demonetize me and you don't demonetize the guy that says the opposite of me and you do that regularly, is that the kind of thing that this group is looking at? I would suggest yes, but nobody really knows. This is kind of political theater to a certain extent because this is showing that they're going to do something. They're going to collect this information and it doesn't say what they're going to do with it. Finally, in the final version of the executive order, they added a section six that says the attorney general shall develop a proposal for federal legislation that would be useful to promote the policy objectives of this order. So as part of all of this, the executive branch is going to put together a bill that they would like to have voted on in the House and the Senate to do certain things related to these concepts. And I do think that Section 230 is in need of reform. It's an older bill. It doesn't really focus on the internet as it exists today. And I think the legislature is the right place to have that debate, to have that discussion between Republicans and Democrats, to have the compromises that are needed when you make the political sausage. I don't think that's appropriate on an executive order basis. And I didn't certainly this morning when they were trying to change the law through an order of this type, but I don't really have a problem with the executive branch saying, hey, we'd like the legislation to look like this. And you hand it over to Nancy Pelosi or Mitch McConnell or whomever. And they work on trying to get a bill in that fashion made. And certainly if that does happen, if that process does start, we'll be right here in virtual legality commenting on what it looks like, because this is very, very important stuff for how every corner of the internet operates. So if you followed me with two separate videos today, I very much appreciate it. I hope you enjoyed it. Please tell your friends we're here. Like, share, subscribe, hit bells, do whatever it is that is necessary to get this information out there. I apologize if you think we doubled up a little bit. It's always very important to me in this space to make sure that I get the information as accurate as possible. And I didn't want anybody to just be running around 
with the earlier video saying this is the end state, that this is what the president signed. I think that earlier video is very important in terms of what the executive branch would like to be aimed at and understanding how they changed it over to what they have right now in the final version. And as a matter of fact, if you're at all interested in law and how contracts work and how negotiations work, that red line process that we just went through is very, very informative as to what that looks like. And if this was a contract, I would have done that for a client. I would have reviewed what the changes were. I would have offered my suggestions as to what to negotiate back. And you can begin to see what my day job looks like. And this is what I do every day. So I hope you found it informative. I hope you found it educational. If you watch this on YouTube, thank you so much for watching. And if you listen to it as a podcast, thank you so much for listening. And I will catch you on the very next episode of Virtual Legality. Virtual Legality is a YouTube video series with audio podcast versions presented as commentary and for education and entertainment purposes only. It does not constitute legal advice and does not create an attorney-client relationship. If you have legal questions about the topics discussed, please consult your own legal counsel.